When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to season two of the Modern Adventurer podcast. I'm your host, John Horsfall. I'm an adventurer and photographer. And each week I'll be talking with a new guest about their latest adventure from around the world. For all the new listeners and subscribers who have joined, I speak to adventurers and explorers who do remarkable things in the field of exploration and endurance. This is an immersive podcast, so this season their story is cut to music and cinematic effects as we immerse ourselves into the heart of their adventure. My next guest is an award-winning journalist, explorer and biologist who produces wildlife documentaries. For the past four years, he's worked on BBC's A Perfect Planet, a five-part series narrated by Sir David Attenborough. On the podcast today, he shares his passion for the fight to save the critically endangered Javan rhino from extinction. We go with him on his mission to find one of the rarest animals on Earth, an opportunity rarely granted to Westerners to track these incredible animals in their natural habitat. I am delighted to introduce Toby Nolan to the podcast. Thanks very much, John. It's great to be here. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on, and I cannot wait to sort of get into the story. I listened to your story back in, I think, November of last year, and I when I heard it, I, I knew I had to get you on. And with this new format, I think it's going to be absolutely incredible. But before the podcast starts, I always like to ask you to tell the audience who you are and what you do and how you got into this sort of life of adventures. Sure thing. Well, um, uh, I work in, in TV and film. I make natural history, uh, documentaries, wildlife documentaries. Um, I've done that for, for the last eight, 10 years. Um, but long before that, I, 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 um, have spent most of my life trying to find a way to uh, go in search of some of the world's rarest and most endangered animals out there. Um, and as soon as I had the the means to to try and make that happen, I I I, I did so. So I started to lead research expeditions when I got to university and look for ways to fund those expeditions uh, and recruit teams to come with me um, and. Uh, so there, there were there were lots of different expeditions that, that I took out, um, and yeah, that that was that was the kind of the basis of 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 the most recent expedition, which was to look for the Javan rhino. Oh, amazing, 
And so what made you sort of get into this sort of life? What was it from a young age that had you sort of hooked on the Javan Rhino or this sort of wildlife stories as you, or documentaries? Yeah. Well, in, I remember watching Planet Earth, David Attenborough's Planet Earth on, on the BBC when I was, God, how, I mean, it was 20... 2011 no it was it was a long time ago i can't remember when when planet earth was first broadcast but it was a long time ago and i was a kid i was looking on the screen i just remember thinking god that looks like the best job in the world i'd love to do to do that i'd love to work on that so it was always this sort of festering ambition in my head to try and make it happen um and i knew that bristol was the the global hub for it the green hollywood where it kind of all happened so I, I had to try and sort of base myself nearby and keep petitioning people to try and work in the industry but going back i mean i, I i've kind of i've always 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 been into to animals and the outdoors um and it and and looking for birds and bees and bugs in the garden has always been a, 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 a a mad uh, obsession of mine and I've always been really really into all things wildlife I've been mega geeky about it for most of my life um, I used to volunteer with the RSPB when I was 13 and that really got me going got me into the kind of got me into the bird world and uh, got my first binoculars and and started birding um, and that built into more and more exciting things further afield and when i got to edinburgh university i discovered the expedition club and they helped uh encourage you to find a way to organize your own research expeditions and that's where it all kicked off really um and for the javan rhino that was another very special thing because that that all started when i picked up this um, second, I've got this thing about natural history books, about wildlife books. So just everywhere I go, every kind of, you know, um, charity book sale, I, I, I see, I go past, I have to grab something natural history. So I've got a house completely full of all these amazing natural history books, most of which I've never read, but I just <laughs> I love having them around and flicking through them. And one of the ones that I picked up from one of these, uh, these kind of backyard sales was this book <clears throat> called last of the wild by a photograph a pho photographer called Eugene Schumacher. And within it is, um, that's Ujum Kulon, this giant, um, forest they call it the forest of giant palms. And, um, it's this forest where everything underneath it, all the animals are just dwarfed by these enormous plants. And it's an amazing place. Anyway, I just found it amazing to see this, a, a rhino, a rhinoceros in a deep jungle like this. And it just set up this thing in my head as this kind of mythical mammal that I, I really wanted to go in search of. So um, it, it, it sort of never left my head. And then one day I thought, you know what, screw it. Let's, let's, let's start a plan to, to head out and look for the Javan rhino. And so how long did this plan take? I mean, between seeing that photo and between getting out the door was, uh, I guess, best part of 20 years. But in terms of actual planning, I'd say it was kind, it was kind of two, two or three years of sort of getting everything together. 
I mean, the, the idea of what to actually do for the expedition came from earlier expeditions I'd led with, uh, to look for other endangered species, to use a, a similar method of data collection, photo identification, which can be a really effective way to survey critically endangered and very rare animals. So that's what we, we used for the vaquita porpoise in the Sea of Cortez, Mexico. Um, it works really well with marine mammals, and I thought it could work really well with rhinos, um, and it turns out it did. So for context, uh, for people who don't know much about the Java rhino, it's sort of based out in a very remote island of Indonesia. Can you sort of explain a bit more about that? Sure. Well, actually, the island itself isn't actually remote. It's in. It's on. That's the most amazing thing about it is the entire population is on the island of Java, which is the uh, the most densely populated island on the planet by quite a long way which is just crazy. There's, I mean, it's got the island, it's got the city of Jakarta on it. There's 121 million people on it. And at the same time, in the bottom left, southeast, southwest corner, there's this tiny little peninsula, Ujung Kulon Peninsula. And um, it's one of the last true great wildernesses in Indonesia. It's this extraordinary forest. Um, and it still has its sort of post uh, ice age megafauna still intact. It hasn't been they haven't been hunted out. So part of that are these the Javan rhinos, Javan rhinoceros, um, and the other thing are these these Banteng buffalo, these very rare uh, wild buffalo that live in the jungle as well. Um, and so you've got this incredible juxtaposition in Java of the of pure wilderness and. Uh, Extra, extraordinarily high um, population centres, um, and I found I always found that amazing that you could have you know you know jungle rhinos living on, on an island in Indonesia in this day and age. Just found sounded amazing. So taking you three years from the sort of concept to getting out there. Well, let's let's jump into the story. So you were sort of there on your sort of first day. You flew into Jakarta and then probably took the long road all the way down to this peninsula. Yes, exactly. So uh, you get to Jakarta, overnight in Jakarta, then head all the way down to Ujung Kulon. Um, then we would overnight in a very small village near the entry to the park. Um, and then we would head deep, deep into Ujung and towards the, uh, the rhino protection zone. And this is a very special area that not many people are, uh, are allowed to go to. So it takes a long time to get permission to go there, very expensive permission to go to this part, rightly so, of course, of, of the park. So it's, it's a day long walk through the jungle. Um, so we're winding our way through these very narrow tracks uh, all day, all long, all, all you know, all day to, to get to this part of Ujung Kulong, uh, and then you're you're along this incredibly long sandy beach. Um, it's it's you know it's it's all along the coast there, that jungle. So um, very wild coast. So so even when you're in the jungle. You, you, a lot of the time you've got the sound of big breakers, you know, 
quite close by because it's this very wild coast that just the ocean is unbroken all the way to Antarctica so we've got these big breakers that just roll in um, and uh, and I, I mean the jungle is hot and sticky and sweaty and wonderful as though that's why I love it it's a very intense place to be and New John Coulon is no exception it's a it's a it's a it's a heavy going lowland jungle with lots and lots of mosquitoes and quite high malaria and so you have to be careful but it's it does you know it's it's got its bugs it's got all its uh the, the normal jungle things um so we arrived next to a small uh a little river that came off a a lagoon a big coastal lagoon where we planned to camp we arrived there at about uh, late in the evening and pitched camp, pitched hammocks between um, uh, small trees and lit a fire um, and planned to head off on the river in search of the rhinos at about 4am the next day. Um, and actually uh, that night, um, even within 24 hours, stuff started to happen in quite an extraordinary way really. So went to sleep to all the sounds the night sounds of the jungle you know the the, the tinkling of frogs and cicadas um night jars and owls uh and i drifted off into sleep knackered from travel of course and just and woke up at about 4 a.m with a start and um to this sudden uh sort of thumping sound outside outside my hammock um, it was like this kind of mini stampede, really loud, crashing through the jungle, very close to our camp. And so, so bleary-eyed, kind of ran outside and uh, went to see Chenglus, who was one of our top trackers, sitting by the fire, quite kind of dazed, um, looking sort of shocked and uh, uneasy. So I started talking to him. I was like, Chenglus, what's what's happened? And he basically, that night, he'd gone onto the beach to um, just sleep, to light a fire and sleep. Um, and I don't think anyone had been to this part of Ujankuna for a long time. Um, so we were the first humans there for quite a while, I think. So Chengdu's lit, lit a small fire. And then he'd woken up with a start in the middle of the night to essentially see a rhino standing over him, snorting, looking at him, um, and not knowing what he, what he was, uh, very confused. And the rhino got closer and closer, realized that Chenglus was, was something suspicious, possibly human, um, snorted and just ran off with a start. Um, and Chenglus was absolutely terrified. And essentially, what had happened is the rhino had seen Chenglus's fire on the beach and been drawn out of the forest. This is our theory, um, in, just by curiosity, swam across the big coastal lagoon that separates the beach from the forest, you know, just to try and come and check out what the fire is. Swam across the lagoon, climbed up onto the beach and walked over to Chenglus and looked over at him. And bear in mind, these animals are extremely shy and were barely seen in the wild for about 50 years so so it's it's 
you know, to, that kind of behaviour is just amazing. So it was tantalising to hear this, and I mean, obviously, very scary for for Chengdu's, but but also to think, my God, we've already come that close to a German rhino on night one. And I went down to the beach that morning and could see these fresh prints, uh, these fresh footprints going along the beach towards where Chengdu's had his fire. And it was amazing. You could just see these very clear, huge toe pads of rhinos. So that was, a, that was an exciting start. How long had it been since in the jungle before you had actually seen your first rhino? It actually happened on it actually happened pretty quickly. It was within it was within the first week that we had our first sighting. We then had about best part of two weeks of nothing because of the rain largely. Um, and our camp was unusable and we couldn't really get on the river because the water levels were too high and when we could there was no evidence of rhinos. I think it was too high for the rhinos. There was just too much. There was just too much water. There seems to be a happy medium that they liked. Um, so we had our first sighting pretty quickly within, I think, within the first week. But then there were kind of gaps after that, long gaps before the next one. And then when the conditions were just right, then we had this wonderful cluster of sightings, and there were about three days where we saw uh, two different rhinos, um, at least one of them every day, which was extraordinary really to be able to see the rarest large land mammal on the planet with that degree of regularity was such a treat. I mean, was there a moment during that trip, uh, you know, where you felt it would might all fall apart? Well, you know, when it lashed it down with rain for two weeks... Well, to be honest, that first night with Chenglus in the, on the when he was on the beach and the rhino came after him, that was pretty, <laughs> pretty good. Nothing happened that night on night one. But then I think about two weeks in, because um, as I said, these canoes are inflatable, and, and and I mentioned this this jungle is just completely chocker with spiny palms. So as you go up these waterways, you've got these huge dangling uh, spiny fronds just hanging, draped all over the all over the channels, and you're kind of clearing your way through them. Of course, always nervous about the inflatable canoe underneath you, because there are a lot of saltwater crocodiles there. They they love the area. It's very easy for them to get into these rivers. Um, they weren't huge crocs, but there were plenty of them. Um, and uh, and at one point we were a couple of miles up, and suddenly one of the one of the canoes just just burst. Essentially, it just got got caught on a thorn and and started taking on water pretty quickly. Um, so we had quite a frantic paddle, <laughs> quite a frantic couple of hours paddling back to camp before. Uh, one boat was completely, you know, over, uh, sunken and left left for croc food. That was probably the most nervous thing. And so you're paddling frantically. Wow, God. And so how many, for the sort of audience, how many were sort of in a boat at the time? Was it just two of you on each boat? Two of us, exactly. There were two trackers and there were two of us. 
myself and my friend Kyle McBurney, who was filming the expedition. Um, so I was, I was getting the images for the photo ID and, and Kyle was making a film about it. So we each were in a kayak with, with a tracker. Um, I mean, we were amazingly quiet actually as we drifted upstream. It was, it, it was, it did work very, very well until the boat burst and, and you start taking on water, and then it, then it, <laughs> then it all backfires. Um, but we patched it up when we got back to shore. Um, it never really fully recovered, but uh, enough for us to, to head out, keep heading out, and just keeping an eye on it. <laughs> wow! And so towards the end of the trip. And maybe the last time that you paddled out to see the rhinos one last time, what happened? The final encounter we had was the best one, without a doubt. The final encounter, we'd, we drifted around a couple of corners. Um, it was near the sort of middle of the day. The heat was really starting to build then. Um, it was kind of nine or ten I remember a lot of monkeys around jumping over the connect over the channels at that point and um uh and I just sort of think we think we're done for the day and then we round this corner and then then again get the shoulder tap <laughs> and Mita had seen this thing in front of us and we just kind of stop paddling and just drift and we just see this incredible purplish pink they're an amazing color they're sort of hippo colored um really sort of deep purple and this big uh male rhino just 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 holding itself there in the water um with its chin on the mud on the riverbank and he was just sort of dozing and and farting and puffing and snorting and um, and we watched him and drifted closer and then he kind of had a little dip and a bath and washed his head a few times and we, we were really close. I mean, we were within, we were within 10 meters. Uh, the, the, the rhino just kind of kept coming closer and closer and because their eyesight's pretty terrible most rhino species eyesight's terrible so as long as you're as long as you're the right wind direct you know the right side of them in terms of wind and they can't hear you you're super quiet then you've got a good chance of just being undiscovered and I assume that was what was happening um, because we just had this most incredible hour-long encounter with uh, this male um, as he did his thing and I just rattled off a load of pictures um, and he became the star of the show really and it was wonderful it was just what it was it was I mean the, the trackers were at great pains to say this was in their opinion the longest recorded encounter with the Javan rhinoceros in the wild um, it, was, it was it was a super special encounter and um, it was really, really important for the expedition because we could get, I could get such close detailed images of the horn and of the skin folds around uh, the rhino's face, around the cheeks, around the eyes. Um, and it, it was just really easy after that to be able to compare 
other rhinos we'd photographed and, and see, oh yeah, we've seen this rhino on this day and this day and this day. And that was a bit of a game changer as well because the, the trackers had assumed, because they hadn't obviously been taking detailed photos like these, um, they'd been limited to camera traps before these expeditions. That was the whole point of the expedition. Um, they'd assumed that if you encounter a rhino on the river, then it gets so disturbed from the area because they're so sensitive that it will leave the area and not come back for a long time. Um, and if you see a rhino again, that'll be a whole new individual moving in that you would then be disturbed again and moved away. But these images were showing that these were repeat rhinos that we were seeing. So they were not being as, as disturbed as we were expecting. So they were, they were coming back to to rest and, and relax and, and wash and bathe in the river, um, regardless of their previous encounter, regardless of their previous disturbance. So that was really interesting, and it, showed, it indicated perhaps um, there are fewer than people were thinking before in terms of using those river rhine areas, um, but also just perhaps they're less sensitive locally to disturbance than, we, than had been assumed. What was the uh, sort of feelings like when you sort of got back to camp from there and the sort of feelings when you left after experiencing, you know, this incredible, you know, expedition and you set out and you achieved, if not more than you had ever hoped? It was ex it was completely uh, euphoric. It, it was absolutely euphoric. I mean, it was... It's very cliche to say it was it's a dream come true, but it really was it really was it was just hard to sort of contain my joy or our joy. It was electric the feeling in the camp after we'd got these had this first encounter, got these first images, and then it got better and better. Um, and the joy just sort of built and and uh, it, it was it was just it was remarkable. I remember the first time when I first clapped eyes on one that that sort of really dark, uh, the one in the darkness there, and in, in you know, early early morning, um, and I, I remember just finding it really hard to believe what I was looking at and thinking, uh, you know, your your eyes don't quite allow your brain to process it, and you just you, I'd searched for them for so long and hoped to see one for so long, and it was such a a dream and all the work that had gone into it to, to make it happen. And then it was sort of unfolding in front of me. There was this gorgeous, very gentle beast just having his uh, early morning bath in front of us. It was, it was absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I'll never forget it. Wow, what an incredible sort of story. And have you got any plans to sort of go back out there again? Yeah, I do. I do. I was, uh, I had plans um, for every year afterwards, but I was there in 2020, I was there in Feb 2020. So just as the COVID pandemic was starting to, to um, take effect. And so I had plans to go back that year and obviously they got cancelled and then the following year and they got cancelled then the year after that and they got cancelled Indonesia's only just opened up um, so 
the, the opportunity has returned to go back to Ujankulon. Um, but I'm about to descend deep into a year-long edit for my current uh, film work. So it's going to have to go on hold for a little bit. But yes, I absolutely want to go back for sure. And with this uh, little peninsula at the bottom of Java, I know that I, th- I think there's sort of talk of Java being moved as a capital. Is there a fear that this um, little peninsula could be threatened by rising sea levels? I, I actually, I don't know. I don't know if, I don't, I mean, it could be, it could be. I mean, it's on, it's all extremely low level. There's always been a really high uh, tsunami risk there. There's always been a lot of fear about um, about the peninsula being washed away and the the rhinos being seriously affected by a tsunami, um, because the peninsula is really low lying. So sea level rise could affect it um, theoretically in completely the same way. I haven't heard much on the ground talk about specifically sea level rise. Um, affecting Ujankulon in the same way. I don't know if it's because the jungle itself uh, offers some level of protection. I don't know. I don't know. But in terms of tsunami risk and it being low level, um, you know, it's it's really, it's a stone's throw from Krakatoa. Krakatoa is almost within sight. It's the closest land to, to Krakatoa. So it was hit. It was affected by a tsunami a couple of years ago, um, I think the rhino. I think I can't remember how how the rhinos fared in that. I, I know it wasn't catastrophic for them, but uh, there was a small enough tsunami to take out some of the jungle. Um, so that is a that is a fear. There's been talk of uh, airlifting, capturing some of the rhinos, airlifting them out, plonking them on an offshore island um, as a kind of backup reserve population a new founder population. I think that plan was abandoned. I know it was abandoned. I, I don't think it's been resumed or gained traction again um, because it's a sort of double-edged sword f- for the Javan rhino because it, it lives in this incredible habitat that's very intact and, um, you, you know, there's an invasive palm. Uh, but apart from that, it... it it's it's really in excellent quality. It's in excellent nick. Um, all of the different niches are uh, acting as they should. Um, the the forest fauna is 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 in really great shape, and it's very hard for poachers to reach because it's well protected. Um, it's a peninsula. It's almost an island. Uh, there's heavy poaching patrols, and it's very dense. It's very difficult to navigate into. Um, but the, all of the Javan rhinos are in one place. So you've got all 72 remaining Javan rhinos in one single forest, which is great in that they can find each other and they've got uh, a home that's in, uh, of great quality um, and they're all connected. So it really minimizes the risk of inbreeding and the the, the bad effects that has on genetic diversity of, of small populations. Um, but it does mean that it does expose them to... Uh, being very vulnerable to to single 
risks and single incidents uh, like you touched on there, be it sea level rise, be it tsunamis, be it, uh, you know, any big natural disaster, be it disease outbreaks. So there's always that fear with the Jarvan Rhinos, that one big thing and that would could spell disaster. As it stands, um, they're increasing, actually. They're doing really well um, in this little forest that they, this, well, relatively small forest uh, where they're remaining. So, um the last camera trap images from a few years back showed a new calf which bumps the population up to 72, which is extraordinary. So uh, I think the thinking is that they that there's nowhere left for them to go outside of that. So they're probably at capacity. You probably can't squeeze any more Javan rhino territories into that forest. Um, but they've filled it up as, as, as best they can. As, you know, so I think the population is doing relatively well. Yeah, that that was actually my question uh, for the audience who probably don't know just how rare these rhinos are. There are only sixty-two, or yeah, sixty-two odd recorded sightings or different numbers. So, just wanted to sort of pinpoint that as just mm. to show how rare these mam these mammals are. They're super, super rare. Yeah, they're, I mean, we didn't really realize how many there were for a long time. So they used to be, until 2011, they were in Vietnam as well. Um, there was a small population up there, different subspecies. Um, and they, the last one was poached there in 2011. The last one was found decapitated, sadly, and that spelt the end for the Vietnamese Javan rhino, which meant all the remaining Javan rhinos only solely found in Java, um, of which we know there's, we think there's 72 remaining. But they used to be, they used to be extremely widely distributed back when unbroken forest covered most of Asia. They used to find them from India up through northern China, across all of Southeast Asia. They had this, they enjoyed this massive distribution. Um, and then slowly, as the world changed and, and humanity spread across the globe, um, that habitat was eaten away at and then came in trophy hunting. Um, and then they were hunted for food. And then there was a lot of war in those regions. And that took its toll on the, both the rhinos and the forest. And then it's only really the last 40 years that the, the poaching ec epidemic uh, has has taken hold, and that's what's driven the the Javan rhino to the very edge of extinction. Um, and I'm sure everyone knows a lot, you know, plenty about the the international poaching trade. But uh, the rhinos are hunted for their for their horn, um, which is predominantly made of keratin, which is the same chemical protein which is in fingernails and hair, human fingernails and hair. Um, they're hunted for their horn, um, and it has been uh, for various uses. But currently, the biggest use is is for um, uh, for parties uh, in China, um, and it's used as a kind of a hangover cure, both a party drug and a hangover cure. Uh, it's kind of ground into a liquid and and just drunk as a hangover cure. I don't imagine it works. Um, 
but that's that's what's that's what's been driving them to the very edge and is still driving them to the very edge and and means that their situation is still extremely precarious you said though that the females don't have the horns do you think that's probably one of its successes why they haven't i mean they're so close to extinction but do you think that's maybe something that's helped I, I don't know for sure, but I don't think so. I don't think, I think the rhinos are hunted regardless. Um, and, you know, if, if, a, if, a, if a rhino is hunted without a horn, it, they, they might not, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I would bet that poachers wouldn't know that until the rhino's dead in front of them. And at that point, um, they'd, you know, it would just be bad luck for them that they they would have a rhino with no horn. But the females actually, they don't have a horn. But I, I, I believe there's still a a bit of there's a sort of nub in there. There's a kind of just a sort of basal part of a horn. They don't have an actual horn, so to speak. I mean, the male horns are, are tiny. The, the, this this is a species. It's one of the only two species on Earth to have. Uh, one horn in common with the Indian one-horned rhinoceros, um, and the one horn they do have is is very small. You know, it's usually around ten centimeters. So it's it's really it's nothing like the big horns of the black and white rhinos of Eastern Africa, Eastern and Southern Africa. It's nothing like that. Um, so the 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 uh, yeah the kind of rewards for a poacher are minuscule. So is. It's remarkable, really, but but it's you know it's extremely valuable. It's still rhino rhino horn is still the most valuable commodity on planet Earth. It's it's still more valuable than gold, diamonds, uh, and silver than any any jewel, gram for gram. Yeah, Toby, it's been an absolute pleasure like listening to your stories, and it's just incredible to sort of hear about. You know, there's such a rare species. But there's a part of the show where we always ask the same five questions to each guest each week. And the first one being, what does it mean to have purpose? Hmm. That's a very good question. I mean, I, I think for me, I mean, I guess that's a very subjective question, isn't it? it it's, uh, it's going to be different for everyone. Um, I think we live in a we live in a in a world of of great environmental crisis, and um, we've been in a state of biodiversity crisis for as long as I've been alive. But it's never been more pressing, and never been more important and more urgent for us to address than now. So, and I think that's, I think the biodiversity crisis in, in hand with our cli- the climate crisis is for me the most pressing of all things on planet Earth. And I think, you know, if we don't sort uh, uh, our environmental woes out, then we, we're not, we're not going to, we're not going to last, we're not going to survive, we're not going to be able to live in the world we want to live in our species and almost any other so um for me being able to do and go on these incredible adventures has to meaningfully in some way contribute towards go some way towards um 
helping that and helping remedy that crisis. And that might be in part through collecting relevant data and also might be in part through uh, trying to raise as much awareness as possible about specific issues and inspire um, motivation in other people to 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 make change as well. And that's that's as that's as important as it gets for me. Amazing. And what about your favorite quote? Uh, this is a quote from Henry David Thoreau, Walden, or Life in the Woods. We need the tonic of wildness at the same time that we are earnest to explore and learn all things. We require that all things be mysterious and unexplorable, that land and sea be indefinitely wild, unsurveyed and unfathomed by us, because unfathomable. We can never have enough of nature. And that kind of, that sums it all up for me. Uh, what about your favourite travel book and why? My favourite travel book? Yes, my favourite travel book is Into the Heart of Borneo by Redmond O'Hanlon. Uh, it's, it's, it's this wonderful um, romp through the Bornean jungle in search of the Sumatran rhino. Actually, it's very, it's not far off. It was actually one of the, one of the inspiring books for me, um, to go and search the Javan rhino, but I've read this book, um, three or four times and it's just written so well and it's very funny and it captures all the wonderful details of, uh, uh, living with people in the jungle in Borneo and traveling through the Bornean jungle. And I've spent a lot of time in Borneo and in Malaysia and in Indonesia. And I, I absolutely love it. Um, and, uh, it's very easy, easy for me to connect with that, uh, incredibly rich and exciting part of the world by diving back into that book. So I, I absolutely love that. Nice. Why are these adventures important to you? I mean, the, I guess that comes back to uh, that comes back to this idea of of trying to do something to to remedy the state of the world. Um, you know, everywhere we look, uh, biodiversity, wildlife is in trouble, um, and I think it, we have a responsibility to. We surely have a responsibility to protect and preserve life on earth as much as as much as we can i mean i guess there's an argument that some people say sometimes and i've often thought about it that um you, you know everything is in flux and life that you know ex there's always been extinction events and life comes and goes on planet earth but but surely we have within us a, a moral or an ethical. I feel like we still have a moral or or an ethical uh, responsibility to to preserve life on Earth. I mean, would we be poorer or richer if the Javan rhino went extinct? I guess you could argue that a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't know the difference. Your life would go on unaffected, but the world would be a lot poorer. The world surely is a richer more interesting more inspirational place with animals like the javan rhino and with the vaquita porpoise you know these are animals that don't have a functional uh they don't have a kind of great function in our day-to-day -day lives but if you let them go 
then where does it stop? Where do you draw the line? You know, where do you say, okay, well, the vaquita didn't matter, but the honeybee does. You know, I think we are part of such an intricate, intricate web on this planet of such an interdependent, intricate web of, of millions of different species. And we have no idea where, where we slot in really and how dependent we really are and how dependent other species are on, on each other. And as soon as you start, start removing those building blocks, you know, and taking out the pieces of Jenga, then you don't know when it's going to topple and you don't know what's going to happen. So I think at every turn we have a responsibility to, to save life and, and um, preserve other species on the planet. Very true. And in your lifetime, where's the most memorable place you've been and why? Oh, that's a really good one. Um, do you know the most memorable place is probably the, the depths of the Gobi Desert in the middle of winter. Um, we were going to film the last wild camels. There's only about 500 left for a BBC series went out a couple of years ago called A Perfect Planet. And um, it was just extraordinary. It was five days travel from Ulaanbaatar, the capital, down through Mongolia into the Gobi. And uh, it was about minus 50 Celsius at times with wind chill. Absolutely just just frigid, frigid cold. And the the every everywhere you looked it, it was like it was like a martian landscape it, i've never been anywhere that looked less like this planet than the the heart of the gobi it was just black shale as far as you can see very little vegetation at all and yet one of the largest mammals on the planet the the wild camel still survives there somehow and we were filming it as it 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 uh, looks for snow and it's extremely shy and extremely hard to get close to. But that was, that really stuck out for me. That was an incredible place. I was very lucky to go there. Wow. Sounds incredible. Yeah. We had a few people on the podcast who went through the Gobi and everything they said about the Gobi is just all about strangeness and just oddities within it. You know, sometimes we had Ash Dykes who talked about like the silence and how you could even like hear your body function in a sense. That's lovely. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Amazing. And um, what, Toby, what are you doing now and or what are you doing next? And how can people follow you with these sort of adventures that you do in the future? Well, um, I'm... I'm about to dive into this edit on this series, as I said, so I might not be on expedition for a little while. Um, but do keep an eye on my Instagram, and I will have I will be blogging about it. Instagram is, is always the best way, and I'll I'll put news out about that. Um, I always start a new blog or a new website when it comes to uh, a new journey or a new adventure. Um, so yeah, Instagram is the best way. Amazing. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to your stories and I cannot thank you enough for coming on today. You're very welcome. I and I'm sure the audience absolutely loved hearing about the Java and Rhino. Well, you're very welcome. If anyone um, wants to know more about it, they're very welcome to get in touch. Just ping me a message. Amazing. Well, there you go. Well, again, thank you so much and uh, look forward to following your adventures in the future. 
Great, John. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and don't forget to subscribe and review the podcast if you're listening on Apple. A massive thank you to those who reviewed it. And I hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day wherever you are in the world and happy adventures. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.